What are you people doing here today? Come to get your blessing? Amen. Amen. Right now, we're going to go to prayer. It's a time when we come together as a family to make our needs known. And certainly, not only does our family have needs today, but our city, our state, our country, and our world has needs. How many of you have something in your heart that you would like the Lord to interact with and deal with and, and take care of? Amen. I think we all, I think we all do. But the president has called today to be a national day of prayer. And so this is obviously something that we need to be, be praying about. I mean, you can't turn on a TV, a radio station, look at a newspaper, look on social media until you see that, that this has captured the world's attention, the coronavirus. And it's a fluid situation that, that is changing not only daily, but sometimes hourly. And it's something that's on the mind of, of, I would say, virtually every person in some way, somehow. You know, someone asked me, matter of fact, it was Kyle. He asked me, he said, you know, what's our, our, as a church, what's our coronavirus policy? Well, I want you to know, first and foremost, our policy is that we live by faith. Faith in a God who sits on the throne. Faith in a God who created all things and who controls all things. Just like he created the majestic birds that fly through the sky, he also created the mosquito who flies through the sky. And he also created the coronavirus in some way or some form. Whether it's a mutation, but all things are created by our Heavenly Father. And we have faith in, in him. But along with that, we're also going to, uh, part of our policy is we're going to use common sense. God did not give us common sense and not expect us to use it. And so that means that we're going to wash our hands. We're going to practice social distancing. And we're not going to be offended if someone gives us a fist bump or an elbow bump instead of shaking our hands or giving us a hug. While we each have a level of faith, we each have a level of faith. And while your faith may be strong enough that you can play with snakes and drink poison, some other person's faith may not be that strong. And the Bible says if eating meat offends your brother, we're not going to eat meat. And so don't be offended and don't be holier than thou. Because we are all in this situation together. And we need to support one another. We need to build each other, other up. But most importantly, there's a few things that I want to share with you. Eternal truths as to what our coronavirus policy is and what our policy is to live life. And number one is God instructs us, instructs us at least 80 times to fear not. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid no matter what CNN or Fox or the Daily Oklahoman or Facebook has to say. Do not be afraid. The second thing is God loves you. 1 Peter 5 says, cast your cares on him because he loves you. Rest in that fact. Number three, trust in his faithfulness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, God is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you. 
Our next policy is be at rest. Psalm 91 says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Be led by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Psalm 143, he will lead you forward on a firm footing. And then number six, keep your focus on Jesus. Not the virus, not what's going on around you. Keep your focus on the Lord. Isaiah 26, God will keep the mind that is dependent and focused on him in perfect peace. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. And take comfort in the fact that he is the God of trillions of stars and billions of galaxies, and yet he knows you by name. He knows the hairs on your head, and he holds you in his palm. Take comfort in that today. Would you stand with me all over the congregation? Each hand that went up represents a need that someone knows about, a need that someone is facing. And then also on this National Day of Prayer, we're going to pray for our country, for our city. We're going to pray for our world, that God's will will be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we honor you and we praise you. And before anything else, we want to worship your holy name. And we want to lift you up and we want to magnify you. Lord, each hand that went up, it represents someone or something, a need, a situation that's going on in the lives of our family today. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would dispense your ministering angels to go and get involved in that situation. For Lord, you already have the answer before we ask the question. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. And we, we stand with anticipation of testimonies that we're going to hear as a result of the prayer and as a result of the answers to prayer that you have provided. Heavenly Father, we come before you to now on this crisis that's facing our nation, facing our world, this coronavirus. Lord, we want you to know that we stand in awe of you. And Lord, we wait upon you and we worship you. And Satan, I want you to know we bind you in the name of Jesus. We bind you in the name of Jesus for what you would take and try to twist and try to, try to corrupt and try to, try to defeat the minds of people in our world. We bind you in the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, give us the peace that you hold us in your hand, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that you are in control. You are the healer, God. You are the healer. You are the healer of all our afflictions. You took stripes on your back that we shall be healed. We will be healed. We are healed. And Heavenly Father, as we pray for our nation today, we pray for our world, for those who are suffering, for those who have been infected, for those who are infected, for those who maybe have not tested yet. We pray that you will come in and supernaturally circumvent this situation, bring it about to bring our country, to bring our world back to you, to where we know that you truly are the God of all gods, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Let this be a revival in our hearts, Heavenly Father. Lord, we are so careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. And Lord, if nothing else comes out of this, Heavenly Father, we want you to know today that we trust you. We have faith in you. And we honor you. And we praise you, Lord. Lord, I pray a special touch of healing and anointing over this auditorium today, Lord. Let your healing touch be on every person that's here today. 
Lord, let them feel the presence of your anointing, the presence of your healing touch. And we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. You can be seated. You know, I, um, a buzzword you're hearing everywhere is social distancing uh, today. And, uh, you know, I guess our young people have taken it literally. Because usually they sit on the second pew. They've moved back to the third pew. So I guess my spit makes it to the second row. And so they wanted to make sure that they got out of harm's way and, and, and went back to the third row. That's okay, guys. Hey, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. To begin with today, uh, I need you to do something with me. We're going to have a class participation today. And so um, what I want you to do when I give you the signal here in just a minute, I want everyone to, to, to do this. Go, oh. Okay, you ready? One, two, three. Oh. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Let's try it again. One, two, three. Oh. Okay. Now, you know, come on. Help me out here a little bit. Okay. In just a second, I'm going to give you the signal. And we're all going to do it together. You know, because I just think, I, I think it'll be meaningful to you. Okay. Now, my, today my message is about money. Should we do it one more time? Would you feel better? One, two, three. It's about money. (laughs) But did you know, did you know that Jesus spent more time talking about giving and managing possessions than almost any other topic he covered as his time on earth? The only thing I think maybe he talked about more was the kingdom of heaven. And so, obviously, finances were something that he felt was important. And I agree, while while the subject has been abused by some, it's still part of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't throw away the scalpel because some idiot surgeon was guilty of malpractice, do we? So just because there's possibly been some malpractice in the area of teaching about giving and about God's blessings, it doesn't mean that we should throw out the baby with the bathwater in regards to finances. Because I really believe that most of us would live more managed lives if we would manage our material lives by God's book. Now, I told you that my message today is about money, but, but it may surprise you because I'm going to talk, talk about love. I'm going to talk about obedience. I'm going to talk about sacrifice. I'm going to talk about God's presence. That's a sermon series that we're in. And I'm really not going to say that much about money because I want you to see the foundation behind true Christian generosity. You see, because the concept of stewardship isn't just about dollars and cents. Matter of fact, it isn't about dollars and cents at all. It's about motives. It's about attitude. And so, guys, you don't have to roll over on your cheek to protect your wallet. Ladies, you can release the death grip you have on your purse. We've already had our offering. It's okay. Man, I mentioned it was about money, and guys sit down real hard in their seat. Women grab their purse like that. And I don't know how it goes. I've been at this a while. 
Now, we've been talking about the mystery of God's presence, and so let's see what Jesus has to say about his presence. We're going to begin. We're going to begin looking at John chapter 14. We're going to begin reading at verse number 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep some of my commands. I mean, five minutes into it, and I'm already preaching heresy. <laughs> if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. Now, the world isn't able to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Talking about the Holy Spirit. God's presence. It's going to be in our life, but it all starts with, if you obey me, you'll follow my commands. If you love me, you will obey me. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. He's going to be with us. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. Hallelujah. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Obeying his commands is an expression of love towards our Heavenly Father. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will also love him and will reveal myself to him. Hmm. Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said, well, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will have his presence. Now, the one who doesn't love me does not keep my words. And so we see, what we see is that love produces obedience. And love and obedience together create an environment for the presence of God to dwell in. Okay, file that away. We'll get back to that in a minute. Now, over and over in the Bible, we're taught that God's blessings and his favor follow acts of obedience. For example, Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 says, If you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow his commands, the Lord your God will put you far above all nations of the earth. And all of these blessings will come and overtake you. Why? Because you obey the Lord your God. And then it goes on to list all the blessings that you're going to receive. This context establishes the principle that the blessings of God will literally chase you down and overtake you when you walk in obedience to the commands of the Lord. Now, if your obedience to God is an expression of the love in your heart, well, then it's an act of worship and God responds to that kind of worship. It's like when my kids come and tell me they love me when they don't want anything. I mean, it makes me want to do something for them. Now, granted, it certainly doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it makes me want to bless them. 
Well, in the same way, when we love God and express that love through genuine obedience without any ulterior motive, oh God, I need a new Cadillac, it makes him want to bless us. God's blessings follow obedience. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God's blessings and his presence are not always synonymous. Our culture has mistaken the fact that if someone is walking in the blessings of God, they must have the presence of God in their life. But it's possible, it's possible to have the anointing of God and not have the approval of God. You say, really? Show me. So you're from Missouri, right? I'll show you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? I mean, these people had great ministries. They used the power in the name of Jesus, but yet he says to them in verse 23, I never knew you depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. That's what Jesus said. These people didn't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, and therefore they did not have the approval of God. But now a logical question that comes out of that is, I mean, how can someone do great things for God but have sin in their life? How is that possible? And it is an interesting theological question. But as with all questions, the Bible has the answer. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. God says, my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty. God's word will never come back void. It will prosper in what I send it to do, says the Lord. So God's word is all powerful. This world, this universe was created by the word. You were created by the word. God's word is going to result in his will being done. And so we see that the blessing of God isn't necessarily a synonym for the presence of God. And so what that means is that you and I must make sure that our heart is more interested in his presence than we are in his blessing. Now we begin this series in Exodus chapter 33 with God and Moses having a conversation about God's blessings and his presence. The Lord told Moses to leave where they were and go up to the land that he had promised to Moses' ancestor, Abraham. And God promised, now when you go, I'm going to send an angel with you to provide for you and to drive out all your enemies. And God says in verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. I mean, isn't that interesting? God says, you're going to be blessed, but I'm not going along for the ride. In other words, you're going to have my blessing, but you're not going to have my presence. Now, there are a lot of people who would be content with that because we've developed a selfish Christianity where we expect God to give us gifts like Santa Claus or pay off like a slot machine at Lucky Star Casino. And we play him for selfish reasons to better our own lives. Now, don't get me wrong. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. There are a myriad of scriptures in the Bible about his promises of abundance, about his promises of blessings, and I completely believe in biblical prosperity. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to fact check our motives as to why we do what we do. It's our obedience and act of worship. 
Is it our love that causes our obedience that brings us to a place of sacrifice? Or are we simply playing God like the stock market, trying to get a return on our investment? A lot of people are pursuing obedience to God for the sole purpose of getting the the covenant contractual blessings that God promised. And so that can result in the fact that it's possible to walk in the blessings of God, but yet not walk in the presence of God. Our real investment should be worship of our Savior. Our real investment should be to partner in the kingdom of God to bring people to to saving grace. And then we just view the blessing that we receive as simply a byproduct of his presence. Well, after God had promised angels and after he had promised blessings, Moses says in verse 15, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't make us go up from here. Don't send me. Moses said, if I have to choose between your blessings and your presence, give me your presence. And ladies and gentlemen, that should be written on the cornerstone of our hearts today. If God is not going with us, we do not want to go. His presence is more important than anything else in our lives. Now, God's blessings do often follow his presence. But it's when our heart is driven by love. For him that causes us to act in that obedience. And then it's our pure motives that invite his presence into our life. See, we need to be careful that we haven't bought into the give to get mentality that results in selfish ambition, and and that's the main reason why we give to God. Listen, of course, God blesses. The Bible talks a lot about the promises of God to bless, about the promises of abundance, of favor, of increase, of miraculous provision that will follow your giving. But when we focus so much on what happens to us when we give, consequently, many of us will lose heart as to why we give in the first place. You see, the true reason that we should give is because of obedience to the Father, but which results from the love that we have for the Father. Now, another principle we need to understand is that God's presence follows sacrifice and surrender. His presence follows sacrifice and surrender. In 1 Kings chapter 18 at Mount Carmel, Elijah confronted King Ahab and the prophets of Baal to see whose God was really real. Well, the prophets of Baal, they sacrificed their bull Nothing happened. They end up dancing around, chanting, cutting themselves. Still nothing happened. But then Elijah, the prophet of God, he's going to prepare his sacrifice, and he has to rebuild the altar. The state of Israel was such a sinful case that the altar of the Lord had been demolished. So Elijah rebuilds the altar. He digs a trench around it. He puts the bull on it, and then he pours water in it to fill up the trench. And when the sacrifice is laid on the altar, God comes with fire, consumes the sacrifice, and even licks the water up out of the trench. But I want you to notice that the presence of God did not come until the sacrifice was made. To make this point further, in Genesis, God promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky. What a promise. And so God gives Isaac to Abraham. 
Well, when Isaac is a young man, you guys know the story. You've heard it since Sunday school. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 22 and says, Take your son, your only son, Isaiah, to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to me. Well, Abraham didn't argue with God. The Bible says that he took his son and went up to the mountain and lifted the knife to walk in obedience to God. But the Lord stopped him and spoke to him. In verse 11, the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. It was almost as if Abraham's obedience and sacrifice demanded the presence of God. How can you get more emphatic about God's presence and God showing up and say, Abraham, hey, wait a minute. I am here. I'm in the midst of your obedience. I'm in the middle of your sacrifice. Now, obviously, God never wanted Isaac's life. He wanted Abraham's heart, and Isaac was the way to Abraham's heart. But likewise, the problem is many of us have fallen in love with the blessings of God more than we are in love with God himself. You see, God wants to know what or who is sitting on the throne of our heart. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing story. You know, when you read Genesis 22, you expect an argument. God gives Abraham this miracle child, but then he wants him back. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Personally, I would have probably had to have an intense moment of fellowship with God right then. Not an argument. No, I hope I'm smart enough not to argue with God, but an intense moment of fellowship. It's kind of like Starla and I. We never argue, but we do have intense moments of fellowship when she spends too much money on shoes. The neighbors down the street hear it, but we don't argue. But the Bible says there was no deliberation. Abraham saddled his beast, and he went with Isaac up to the mountain, and they got there. Isaac looked at his dad and said, Dad, where's the lamb? What are we going to sacrifice? Can you imagine how that broke Abraham's heart? And Abraham's response was, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He said, Isaac, God will be our Jehovah Jireh. You see, Abraham had enough love in his heart for God that he trusted God. And that love yielded obedience, and obedience is willing to sacrifice. When love leads to obedience, it leads to sacrifice. God will scream into that, here I am. I am in your midst. The presence of God flows, <clears throat> excuse me, the presence of God follows that kind of giving. And when it's motivated by love, substantiated by obedience, and punctuated by sacrifice, God says, I am here. So we see that the blessings of God follow obedience, and the presence of God follows sacrifice. So obviously, they're both very important principles. But then, with that in mind, how do we reconcile the statement in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 that says, to obey is better than sacrifice? Another interesting theological question. Well, see, the concept here is similar to the parable Jesus told about the prodigal son in Luke 15 that we studied a few weeks ago in depth. You see, Israel's like the elder brother. They were doing everything right. They kept their religious list, but yet their heart wasn't engaged. They were doing all the sacrifices that Jewish law asked them to do. They were religiously serving God, but their heart was far away from God. And so God got tired of their sacrifices. 
He wanted their heart. And that's why he says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He's telling the nation of Israel, I don't need another burnt offering. I don't need any more blood spilled. See, they were keeping all of their moral obligations. They were doing their religious duty, but their heart wasn't engaged with God. They were just going through the motions, but God is saying, Israel, I don't want burnt offerings. I want you. I want your obedience, and it is more important to me than your sacrifices. You know, God has taken me down some roads of sacrificial giving before. But every time, God didn't need what I had to offer. He didn't need it at all. What he needed was me. He needed me to give him back my heart. Now, you need to understand, sacrifice looks different for different people. Whether it was Abraham who brought Isaac, or David who gave billions of dollars in gold, to build God's temple, or the widow who brought two pennies to the treasury, or even Almighty God who gave us our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah. All of these acts were considered extravagant acts of love, obedience, and sacrifice. And the presence of God responded to each one of them. You see, in the parable of the lost son, the young boy wasted his inheritance, but he came to himself and realized the error of his ways. So he goes back home, and the father forgives him and accepts him back in the family. But the elder brother, who never left, I mean, he's mad. He's furious. He says, I've never left home. I've obeyed the rules. I've never done anything wrong. See, the older brother was like Israel in Isaiah 1. Chapter 1, he was sacrificing. He was, he was doing the to-dos. He was keeping the list. But listen, God isn't interested in your list-keeping talents. What God is interested in is your heart. Amen. Amen. He has all the burnt offerings he wants. He wants you. And so the father in the story needed more from the older brother than just moral obligation because he wanted both of his boys to celebrate at the feast and he wanted both of his boys to sit at the table. The elder brother kept the law to the T. But yet he's the one who was left out of the celebration because it takes more than just obedience. It takes a heart that truly loves God. Jesus said, when you love me, you will keep my commandments and you will obey me. Love, obedience, sacrifice, it brings God's presence. And God accepts our sacrifices when they're laid on the altar from a faithful and loving heart. You know, every week when we give you the opportunity to give tithe and offerings, we're creating an altar, just like Abraham did and like Elijah did. We're creating an altar to express our love to God. It's an act of obedience. And every opportunity, every offering is an opportunity for me to express obedience in love, which is a sacrifice that invites the presence of God to come into my life. See, true Christian stewardship is a reflection of, of pure love, of genuine obedience, of selfless sacrifice, and total surrender. And that's when God responds with his presence.
Now, you may be asking yourself, or you want to ask me, so, so Mike, are you saying that, that we give to get God's presence? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. The reason I tithe, the reason I give offerings, the reason I sow into missions is because the Bible describes Jesus as the indescribable gift. The indescribable gift. And when I realize and when I remember what that indescribable gift has meant to me, what it has done for me, it invokes inside of me the grace of giving out of love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved he gave. The greatest gift of all time was motivated by God's love. He bankrupted heaven and he gave his most priceless treasure so that you and I could know him for eternity. And if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it would seem that those who bear his name ought to bear his nature. And he was generous to the point of extravagance. God so loved, he gave. You know, there are a lot of people that don't like it when the church talks about money. Matter of fact, it wouldn't surprise me. You know, I haven't preached a sermon on giving in six months or maybe nine months, maybe longer. And it wouldn't surprise me if someone left here today and said, you know, all he does is talk about money. <laughs> then you have some other people that say, well, giving isn't the only part of Christian generosity. And that's true. That's true. People that volunteer, I mean, the church couldn't thrive without volunteers. But you see, giving is the most tangible custom. It's the most concrete metric to test where our hearts are. You see, because our checkbook is the barometer of our trust, it's the thermostat of your love. I was pretty sure it'd be real quiet on that point. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But, you know, the Bible also says that God owns everything. And if that's true, then the roof over my head belongs to God. My kids, my grandkids belong to God. Even my checkbook belongs to God. Although Starla likes to argue about that, but <laughs> she doesn't win. So if everything is his anyway, when he asks for it, it ought to be like Abraham in Genesis 22. There shouldn't be any argument. When I understand it's all his to begin with. And when I'm willing to give it to him, it acknowledges his lordship in my life. And in turn, it acknowledges his presence in my life. Now, you see, here's a point that, that a lot of people don't get. If you make $2 a week, your tithe is 20 cents. Tithe is 10%. If you make $2,000 a week, your tithe is $200. Well, so in our natural way of thinking, people would say that God loves the $200 more than he loves the 20 cents. But you are wrong. Both of these people are on different levels on the monetary ladder in man's eyes, but in God's eyes, it is an equivalent offering. Different amounts, but equal sacrifice. It's the same aroma in, of worship in the nostrils of God. That's why, that's the reason the widow's might is as extravagant as Abraham lying his only son on the altar. That's right. Amen. Amen. I want us to grow in our Christian walk. 
And, and if you give to God begrudgingly or you feel pressured into doing it because it's mandatory, then all that is is being like Israel or being like the older brother. It's hard for God to bless a gift that's just given out of guilt. And let me say this. If I were only interested in the funds of the church getting bigger, I would focus on how blessed you're going to be when you give. And I certainly wouldn't tell you that God's blessing is not synonymous with his presence. I would hype up the give to get philosophy. But like Moses, I want God's presence more than I want anything. More than anything, I want God's presence. But you see, it's also a fact that if love generates your obedience and obedience generates your sacrifice, then that invites the presence of God to come and consume the sacrifice with his presence and that doesn't diminish the fact that when he comes he will bless you as well look at Genesis chapter 22 verse 15 the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven this is what the Lord says because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son your only son I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemy, and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? All because you have obeyed me. Obedience brings the blessings of God. Sacrifices laid on the altar brings the presence of God. So we need to check our motives. We need to check our hearts. Are we like the nation of Israel and Isaiah just giving to relieve our guilt? Or are we truly in love with our Lord and our Savior? If we are, then that love will result in obedience that leads us to sacrifice. And that invites the presence of God. Now, whether you choose to give or not, God's not going off the air. God's not going bankrupt. His work will continue. His work will get done. But the reason he invites us to give is because it's a privileged act of worship to take a part of, of me where I can say, God, I acknowledge that I have this because you gave it to me. And I want it to be an offering of obedience and sacrifice laid on the altar out of love for you. It's not a slot machine. He's not a genie. It's not an investment in your 401k. It's an expression of love, obedience, and sacrifice. It's a test of the heart. It's a barometer of your trust, and it is a thermostat of your 